The sun is setting on another day in Kagoshima. It's time to kick back with a cup of ice water, a stack of tissues, and a steaming bowl of pork ramen covered in a mountain of garlic. I'm John Golden. And I'm Sarah Rovang, and you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. Hi, Sarah. Well, fall is here. Judging from Instagram, all our friends are out picking apples and making pies. Meanwhile, here in Kagoshima... It's 90 degrees Fahrenheit and 100% humidity. Not feeling so fallish here, even though Japan is observing autumnal equinox day and there is Halloween candy for sale in every store. We've come a long way from Hokkaido last week. From the far north of Japan, we are now on the southernmost tip of Kyushu the southernmost major island in the Japanese archipelago. And we went even further south when we took the ferry down to the small island of Yakushima for a few days last weekend. Yeah, and Yakushima has the reputation of being one of the rainiest places on Earth. More on that later. So John, what have you thought of Kyushu so far? It's definitely different from Hokkaido. I mean, no more corn ramen or dairy cows out in the countryside. Here it's all about citrus fruits and regional specialties like charcoal-grilled black pork and flying fish. But in terms of the urban condition, there are a lot of things here in Kagoshima that aren't so different from the other Japanese cities we've visited so far. Yeah, there's still a lot of brutalist buildings mixed in with more traditional Japanese architecture. It's so interesting. Like The urban density has felt almost exactly the same everywhere we've gone. I think everyone always envisions, you know, the packed parts of Tokyo, like Shibuya, when they think of Japan. But those have seemed by far to be the exceptions. Almost everywhere else we've been in Japan has kind of felt like the downtown of a small town, if that makes any sense. Like everywhere in Sapporo or Hakodate, Kagoshima, and even, you know, large tracts of Tokyo had densities that kind of ranged from like downtown Ann Arbor to downtown Albuquerque or downtown Providence. Right, definitely. And it's also fascinating how purely business or purely residential areas are far less pronounced than we're used to seeing. Even the usual sort of expectation that businesses and restaurants typically occupy the first floor of a building isn't true here. There are plenty of second, third, and fourth floor restaurants tucked away in buildings alongside office space or housing. It's all mixed together and homogenized almost. Yeah, homogenized is a good word for it. I think it's actually tightly linked with some of the difficulties we've encountered finding restaurants here, too. The, the, it seems like the food delivery system, you know, is the combination of grocery stores and restaurants and everything in between, is super decentralized and, and homogenized here. You're not going to find a Whole Foods or big standalone restaurants, even like you would in Manhattan. Instead, it's just all tiny shops, you know, either little convenience stores or ramen shops that only seat eight people and they're dotted pretty evenly throughout the landscape, which makes it hard to figure out where to go or if there are any sort of landmark restaurants to try. There are just so many tiny little places you can get food here. Anyway, I'll probably talk more about this in my blog. Back to Kagoshima. So yeah, we've had two very different stays in Kagoshima. When we first arrived last week, we were staying in the Timonkan district in a business hotel. This is the kind of big nightlife district in Kagoshima. Architecturally, it's a bunch of winding, mostly pedestrian streets and a few larger covered arcades. It felt both bright and lively, but also a little seedy. 
I would describe the feel as kind of a 1980s Miami meets the charm of an old European city. That same kind of tight street and two or three story building that you might find wandering around somewhere in Europe, and then the climate and lights and grittiness of South Florida. And it's definitely one of those places where the vibe changes dramatically from night to day. As we were walking back from a late dinner one night around 9 p.m., women in costume had started to appear on the sidewalk as living advertisements for the various nightclubs and gentlemen's clubs that line the streets. And by women in costumes, you mean sexy costumes. Yeah, there were definitely some sexy sailors out that night. This is a port town, after all. And there was also a really strange assortment of stores still open. Lots of florists, for instance, were open in the nightlife district when we were walking around there. And again, it felt like there was this whole cultural and economic realm that we could only just grasp the edges of without really understanding what was going on. I read the whole Wikipedia article on sex work in Japan, and while it did provide some insights, it fundamentally didn't clarify all that much regarding our experience wandering around downtown Kagoshima. Anywhere in the world, the adult entertainment industry kind of operates with its own set of signifiers. You know, for instance, a store in the States marked XXX tells you a lot about its content. And there are certain places you can expect to see, say, a gentleman's club, like just off an interstate, but not associated with any major rest stop. And here, all of those cultural conventions are just simply mystifying. Especially since Japan has such a diversity and number of sort of flirty, sexy experiences for sale. Anyway, I guess this was our first real exposure to this side of Japan, and it was kind of a lot to process. Previously, we've been in much quieter areas, though as we mentioned earlier, still plenty dense with people. Which is where we are again, actually. After our trip to Yakushima, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, we came back for a few more days in Kagoshima. Our current Airbnb is a bit north of the busier downtown area. If we had only stayed here, I think we would have had a very different impression of the city. It's very sleepy up here, not too many shops or restaurants, and we're in walking distance of the historical cultural district, which feels kind of somber and monumental. It's been a good base for our explorations in and around the city, which have, you guessed it, focused on industrial heritage. We got to see our first site of Japan's Meiji Industrial Revolution last week, one of the 23 new UNESCO sites added to the register in 2015. To learn more, check out japansmeijiindustrialrevolution.com. Such a catchy URL! Kagoshima is indeed the site of some of the earliest industrialization in Japan, primarily at the Shua Saikan site, which we visited last week. The industrial parts of this site are part of a much larger national heritage site that deals with the history of the Satsuma clan, which was the most powerful ruling family in this part of Japan for a very long time. Which was actually a bit confusing, because the buildings and archaeological sites that are specifically part of the UNESCO site weren't really clearly marked out in any of the signage within Shua Saikan. And this was a 12-acre site, so there was definitely a chance of missing some of them. And not all of the UNESCO buildings are even part of this site dealing with the Satsuma clan. As I discovered at about 5 p.m., and so I made a mad rush up the street to see one of the important buildings that I'd missed. Most of the other visitors at Shuisaikan were clearly visiting to see the gorgeous gardens and restored historic house. Not so many folks doing what we were doing and taking a lot of pictures of the reverberatory furnace. But the whole industrial aspect is such an interesting and crucial part of the site. Shuisaikan was an incredibly early example of industrialization in Japan, too. 
The industrial production of this site actually started before the Meiji Restoration in 1868. At which point, Japan was officially open to trade and could source technology and designs from Western trading partners. At this site, though, the Satsuma were trying to make ironclad ships that could compete with those from Europe and the United States before they had access to that technology, though. And because they didn't have access to that technology, they were basically using the resources that they did have already to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. All they had to go off was one Dutch textbook that got smuggled into the country about factory design. So the Satsuma family got creative and used what they could figure out from that one book and fused it with traditional Japanese craft traditions. As a result, the industrial architecture at the site is pretty one of a kind. A strange hybrid of Dutch industry, maybe slightly lost in translation, and things the Satsuma family already knew how to do well as artisans and craftspeople. It certainly didn't look like any industrial site we've been to so far in this trip. In South Africa, the mines pretty much looked how I expected mines to look, but this was a whole different kind of landscape. But the Shuis Saiken site was certainly well set up to handle a lot of tourism. The tourism infrastructure there, including numerous shops and restaurants, was really impressive. I also have really come to appreciate the Japanese penchant for rest houses, which are free, climate-controlled buildings with benches where you can take a break from walking around. It's a really nice amenity. And we ate lunch at one of the restaurants on site, and then took our afternoon tea break at a little cafe where we got matcha and some ice cream. And unlike so many museum restaurants in the Western world, which are often overpriced and of really marginal quality, we have been uniformly impressed with the museum dining here in Japan. I know it's a weird thing to focus on, but it's been really incredible. At Shui Saikon, I had an awesome multi-course seasonal lunch for something like $15. And with an amazing view of Mount Sakurajima. And the cafe we went to in the afternoon had a beautiful interior. It was sleek and modern and minimal. It looked like it could be a Michelin-starred restaurant. Instead of a place where you eat ice cream and drink a cup of tea. I was also impressed at how well all of the new shops and restaurants meshed with the site. The really big ones that required lots of seating and big kitchens were built into the hill so as not to obstruct any of the views of the historic architecture. They were extremely understated. And the smaller shops that were constructed down near the real historic buildings blended in as well, and actually added to the impression that this was the compound of an elite family. So we wandered around the site for a few hours, trying to take in as much as we could. I had downloaded the Japan's Meiji Industrial Revolution app before we came, and was able to use it on the site to help see all of the structures that were connected to the UNESCO landscape. The app, which despite being a bit buggy, has some impressive augmented reality features. You can look at your phone, which uses the camera and GPS, to add text tags to your experience. And it's gamified, too, so you get points for going around and seeing different things on the site. Or completing quizzes or other history quests while at the site. I'm not actually sure how I felt about it all. It seemed like you spent a lot of time looking at your phone, Sarah. Yeah, the augmented reality feature was weirdly addictive and certainly detracted from my desire to be in the moment and explore the site. But without the app, I wouldn't have found that one building away from the main site that I forgot. And I used it again earlier today when I went out to see the Sekiyoshi Sluice Gate of Yoshino Leet. Uh, sorry, what was that? You know, the Sekiyoshi Sluice Gate of Yoshino Leet. It was quite an experience finding it in the first place, which I've written a blog about this week. 
But once I got out to that site, I was glad to have the app because there was so little English signage and the only docent there spoke purely Japanese. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how often you use that app when we get out to the other sites that are on this heritage route. I gotta keep up my spot in the rankings, though. Right now I'm player number two. You earn lots of points for visiting the sites and doing the quest, and I want to make it to number one. You better watch out, Nagasaki. This is heritage tourism in the digital age, folks. At least we got a bit of a break from all this industry when we took a two-day side trip out to the rainforest island of Yakushima. There was still industry there, though. Yeah, 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 but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Anyway, our motivations for heading to Yakushima were actually a bit impulsive. Earlier this summer, my mom forwarded me a story about it in the New York Times. It sounded amazing. I figured it would be in the neighborhood. Where, by neighborhood, he means a two-hour ferry right away. Right, which is close as far as these things go. And so we went. It was pretty easy to convince me to add on this trip since it looked amazing. And after looking at mines and factories all the time, some forest scenery would be a welcome change. It's also a UNESCO site, inscribed in 1993. So I figured it would be a useful contrast to the industrial sites back on the larger islands, which were inscribed much more recently. I've already described a lot of what makes the island so special in my Instagram comments, but I'll try to do a quick recap here for those who don't follow me. Yakushima is a relatively small island, less than 200 square miles, with only about 14,000 full-time residents. Everyone lives right down in the ocean. There's just a single road that wraps around the island. And the interior of the island is all mountains, and they rise really quickly out of the ocean, straight up to about 6,000 feet. Geologically speaking, the whole island is basically just one giant chunk of granite being pushed out of the sea, and it's still rising, about a millimeter per year. The mountains are covered in an incredibly unique forest. Ecologically speaking, there's really nothing else like it in the world. This has a lot to do with the steepness of the mountains, which produce many different climates in a compact area. The island also gets a ton of rain. The local saying is that it rains here 35 days out of the month. Which seems pretty accurate. One night there, we were awoken by easily the most intense thunderstorm I've ever experienced. It was cacophonous, bright flashes and immense rumblings for close to an hour, and the rain was coming down in sheets the whole time. Fortunately, that was during the night, and we weren't caught in any of the major storms like that during the day. But it definitely rained during our hikes. The trees did a good job of blocking a lot of the rain, though. And besides, the rain would cool things off quite nicely. Yeah, the rain actually was quite welcome. It was up near 90 while we were there. Although, when you got high in the mountains, the temperature did drop a good bit. Anyway, the forests there are just the most remarkable things. It felt like everywhere you looked, there was this incredible drama unfolding. You know, gigantic trees, gnarled, twisting roots, moss-covered boulders from an ancient landslide, gushing waterfalls. It also felt, in some sense, more approachable at a human scale than other big forests we've been in. Now, the Costa Rican jungle, by contrast, is almost too thick and dense with vegetation to fully appreciate. Or the California redwoods, which really exist hundreds of feet above the slightly empty forest floor. You really felt like you were in the thick of it on Yakushima. And you wouldn't know it just from looking around, but life is actually pretty difficult on Yakushima. There's the granite base of the island, which does not provide many nutrients, the immense amount of rain and frequent typhoons, and then the higher elevations receive quite a bit of snow in the winter. This has led to a lot of the plants becoming particularly hardy, the most impressive of which is the endemic tree species known locally as Yakusugi. These trees can grow for thousands of years. The oldest on the island is estimated to be up to 7,000 years old. 
and they are super slow growing, and their wood is incredibly high in resin to withstand all the water on the island. People who lived on the island revered these as gods for millennia. However, they started logging them back in the 1500s to provide roof shingles for powerful samurai back on the bigger islands. It was interesting to learn about this early sort of industrialization and how the local people and government viewed resource conservation on the island. Somewhat surprisingly, the Meiji government actually banned logging on the island in the early 1900s to preserve the natural habitat. But the villagers by then had grown so dependent on the income that they revolted. And eventually the government relented and in fact started developing the island for even more extensive logging after World War II. But shortly thereafter, there was an increasing appreciation for the unique natural features of the island, and the logging was stopped by the 1970s, at which point the economic emphasis on the island slowly shifted to tourism. Still, it didn't feel particularly touristy, which is maybe good, since there was very little infrastructure on the island to support huge crowds. We had to drive on some tiny, tiny roads up into these mountains. Yeah, as we've discussed many times already on this podcast, the idea of what is full of tourists is very different here. For example, about as many people visit Yakushima in a year as visit the Louvre in a week, or the island of Kauai in a month. Anyway, after the logging ended, there have been some pretty aggressive conservation efforts. And as John said, the forest looks amazing now. There are plenty of big stumps you can see, particularly since this wood takes hundreds of years to rot but many of those stumps have served as starting points for new trees to grow on, which is fascinating. And it's not just the stumps of trees that serve as hosts for new trees. Even the still living trees are so big and old that they have a ton of plants and even other trees growing off of them. It's just the craziest thing. And there are still a few old Yakasugi left, and they're surprisingly easy to get to by foot. We didn't do any super strenuous hiking, which you definitely can do on the island, but it felt like even just a four-hour loop got us away from any other tourists and into the deep forest with these ancient trees. I'd love to come back and maybe do a multi-day hike across the island, but the bang for your buck on these day hikes was out of this world. Definitely. We stayed in this amazing little Airbnb, which was a traditional little Japanese house with great views out on the ocean. We slept on futon mattresses on tatami mats and made cold soba noodles for dinner while we watched the classic Miyazaki film Princess Mononoke, which was of course inspired by the island. And there was our seaside onsen experience, where we bathed in hot springs while waves lapped up against us, the moon and stars over our heads. And these baths are totally open to everyone. It's not run by a business or anything. You just slip 200 yen or about a buck 75 into a little box on the beach. It was all pretty magical. The next time we find ourselves back in the South Pacific, I'm sure we'll make a detour to Yakushima. Hopefully for longer next time. Definitely. On that note, we'll call it a week, listeners. Catch us next week, where we'll tell you about what it's like to celebrate your birthday on an island covered in the ruins of an old coal mine off the coast of Nagasaki. A tale as old as time. As always, our theme music is by Mark Barrett. Happy trails, listeners. Mm-hmm.